Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. All right, so so I'm, I'm going to lead us off with the first question. Is that, is that good? Right, you, go ahead. You good, Jay? You ready? All right. All right, so what happens when a white guy, a black guy, and an Asian guy get together and talk about identity? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the white guy is very quiet usually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's good. That's good. (laughs) I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is some of my best friends are. In this show, we wrestle with the challenges and the absurdities of a deeply divided and unequal country. And in this episode, we deepen our understanding of that divide by talking with Jay Caspian Kang about his new book, The Loneliest Americans. Khalil, we've been we've been thinking for a while. How do we do an episode of this show of some of my best friends are that that is about the Asian American experience? Yeah, yeah. I, I we have talked about this a lot, and I've I'm like, why don't we talk about all our Asian American best friends? Yeah, yeah. And I was right. worried that that was going to be like, man, we sound like that the joke <laughs> of the show's title, and you were like, yeah, yeah, but that's okay. So then Jay Caspian Kang's book came out, The Loneliest that's Americans. Right. Yep. And I remember you were like, dude. We should talk about this. Yeah, yeah, because I've been following his work for 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 more than a decade, right? Like I remember mm-hmm. he used to write for this website called Grantland, which I also wrote for. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked for Vice News as a civil rights reporter. Yep. He wrote for the New York Times 
magazine, which we've both we, which we've both written for, but I'm bum. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he writes this newsletter now for the New York Times, which is so smart and funny and right. kind of offbeat at the same time. It's part of the race related series, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this was yep. like it seems so connected to what we're doing. And 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 also controversial in a way. Like this book, I think, The Loneliest Americans, takes a, a stance that 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 has actually like he's got some backlash on. Yeah. So we got him on the show. He joined us from his home in Northern California. Yeah. So let's get into it. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. NA member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Just generally for listeners, the book is about the identity of Asian people in America. And, and I'm careful to not say Asian American because you talk about how that identity doesn't exist. Right. And sort of you, you challenge that, that, that sense. And I, I, we, we wanted to invite you on the show because we read this book and it felt so much in dialogue with this show, which is called Some of My Best Friends Are and is you know, about race in all these ways. And also with our lives because the show is really about, you know, we're, we're wrestling with these stories too. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we and, are the white black binary. Yeah, right? and like embodied. And, <laughs> and and this sense like you you write about this white black binary 
and that you know the white part uh, sort of embodying assimilation and upward mobility and the black part a sense of either like victimization and racial struggle and that there wasn't really a place for you personally and also not a place for for most Asians in America certainly my parents were never like how's it going navigating space (laughs) or like you know (laughs) how does it feel to be you know in these classrooms or like you know what's going on in there um (laughs) And, and, and man, I mean, like thinking about your book and thinking about like we went back to our high school yearbook after reading your book because. Yeah, Jay, I, I, brought, it, I brought it out just for oh you, man. God. You know, like it looks like a chessboard, right? Yeah. It's like black, white, black, white, right. black, white. That's wow. it. Yeah, yeah. There's like one white kid on each page. Every, every no, girl has the true. exact same. I'm, exactly. I'm seeing five to- white kids per page at yeah. least. Way more, way more <laughs> well, white not, kids. That's not right the now, page. A blonde kid right in the middle of it. Exactly. <laughs> and more particularly, I mean, to Ben's larger point, I mean, be- because your book inspired so much of our own thinking about like seeing ourselves like across this vast spectrum of how we understand whiteness and blackness. I literally went back and counted like how many students could I identify as part of an Asian diaspora and I couldn't get to two hands. Oh, wow. How big was the school? Almost 2,000. I'm pretty sure our class was about 500. 500. Oh, wow. Yeah, 500. Yeah. And I thought maybe we could first start about the three of us all growing up mostly in the 1980s, and thinking about how we all learned that that binary existed. Like, this is sort of the, the, the main racial divide, and you have to fit somewhere in it. Right, right. I had split my childhood between Cambridge, Massachusetts, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, two university towns. And in Cambridge, you know, after a few years, we, for a year, we moved out to the suburbs. I, I think I was in first or second grade, and this one of my first clear memories is that, you know, uh, watching the kids get off the Metco bus, you know, like when we had moved to the mm. suburbs, just all black, you know, it's just black kids probably from Roxbury or South Boston. You, you got to tell us a little something about Metco because, you know, it's sort of this this dream experiment that people brag about as they like... brag about it, wow. Metco is a, the Boston area um, busing program, right? Uh, and it was seen as this great beacon of, of progressive thought and it was a huge infrastructure thing where they would bus kids 30, 40 minutes out into the suburbs. Um, and that it was basically the peak of like school integration, goodwill, right? And I, yeah, one of the first memories I have from, from my childhood period is just sort of standing at the bus circle and, you know, watching the Mudco bus roll in and every kid who got off the bus was black and there are no black kids at the rest of the school. Like maybe there's one or two, but almost none. I don't think that I was really aware that I was like a much different than the white kids, you know, because mm. I lived in that town, right? Like I didn't take that bus. And so the, the differentiator of race in that, in, in that instance was whether or not you took the bus, right? That was the first time I thought I actually realized that there was any difference, you know, and standing in the bus circle there and just sort of, you know, cause it was so, it was so stark, right? Like it was just like, those kids ride that bus. I don't ride that bus, right? And so I must be part of this group. So then you move from Cambridge, Massachusetts to the South to Chapel Hill, I believe, right? North Carolina. What was that school like? My schooling was very similar to yours. You know, there weren't that many Asian kids around and the school had a lot of black students and a lot of white students, you know. Um, you know, there's this really interesting class element to it, too, where I was in this very odd program back then and it was like 18 of us i don't i hate people who say this but it's like some sort of like accelerated program (laughs) but we had three black kids in that class and 
one of their fathers is like the most famous doctor in the area. Like, you know, like on local news mm-hmm. when the doctor comes on, <laughs> right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, like Sanjay, Sanjay Gupta. Right, right. So he was right. our, in, right. the, local television. in the Piedmont area, he was sort of the Sanjay Gupta. And then the other girl in our class, her father was an educator. The mother was like, I think worked in STEM. And then we have one kid who is from the sort of, you know, the poor black neighborhood in Chapel Hill. And it was interesting how like that was even differentiated, even for us in, in fifth grade, right? You mean you understood these black kids were different from each other? Right, right. It was more ingrained in us to think of it that way than it would be to think of it as being like totally separated, right? And it was very, it made for a very confusing experience that I tried to write about in the book, where it's just like, you know, like, how do you sort of sort all this, especially when, you know, you're, you're in the situation where you have to differentiate. But I mean, it's an interesting point about how you're also navigating the absurdities of racial stereotypes that you can see black people are also trying to traverse, challenge, avoid. And you, you tell this great story about Dwayne, a friend of yours who you befriended. I can't, That was that also in? in yeah, yeah, it's Hill, the same kid who was in that class yeah. who came, who lived in that Okay, so we're talking right. about yeah, Dwayne. Yeah. yeah, he's the poor right. kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You make the point about Dwayne um, uh, as the poor kid in the community being kind of representative of the absurdity of this notion of people of color all being the same. Oh yeah, someone had told me that, that we were both people of color. I would just look at them like they're crazy, you know, because... Um, there was such separation between me and Dwayne, right? And, you know, in the book, I sort of illustrated through this anecdote where, like, our Little League games or some of our Little League games were played in Dwayne's neighborhood. And if you can imagine mm-hmm. how, you know, this is still the South. Chapel Hill's progressive town is still the South, right? Um, and the way in which people would talk about going to those games, right? Lock your car, you know, like make sure that like mm. get in and out as quickly as possible, all this sort of stuff. This kind of anti-black, everyone's a criminal rhetoric. Right. Yeah. And, you know, as a kid, you absorb that, right? And so then mm. you uh, were playing and Dwayne walks over the field. He sees me, he says, hello. You know, I, this is another moment where I just like sort of understand that seeing him in, in that environment, you see like, oh, what they're talking about when they say lock your cars and get out of there as quickly as possible is Dwayne, right? Yeah. Right. And so the idea at that moment that like you and Dwayne are, are both people of color, like what what are you talking about, you know? And um, I don't know. I've thought about that moment so much throughout my life where it's just like, uh, you know, because in some ways I felt like I was betraying him, right? Um, because I was acting so awkward. Uh, and that it was shocking to me. I was like probably 12 years old, something like that. And, um, and I'm having these thoughts, right, about my friend. And right. uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough to talk about even now, you know. And the reality of it is that I think if you said that Deirdre and I, you know, who was a woman whose father was like our famous doctor, if you had said Deirdre and you are people of color, I would have been sure, <laughs> you know. But Dwayne and I could not be people of color together. And I think that that's like a very complicated thing that I think that those types of distinctions are very uncomfortable. But, you know, in, in my life, at least, they're much more felt like, you know, like a, they, they seem much more real to me than terms like people of color. You struggle with the term people of color throughout most of the book. And I've been thinking, is there is there a moment when you really come to terms with who you are? Because that seems to me to be a question at the heart of this book. Who am I? Right, right. That's true. Um, 
Well, I think it was a series of moments. And I think what's interesting about the series of moments, and maybe this is not typical for Asian people, but it certainly was true for me, was that none of the moments had anything to do with white people, right? Of course, in some ways it had to do with white people, but it was not about differentiating myself from white people or having white people differentiate themselves from me, right? It was mm. about every single one of these moments involved black people, right? It involved, mm. it involved either differentiating myself from black people or having black people differentiate themselves from me. Wow. And I think that that actually is, you know, has informed basically all of my thinking, right? And that this went through a lot of phases. Like when I was uh, 16, 17, maybe 15, like I wore Timberlands and listened to, <laughs> listened to Wu-Tang and Nas and Oh, snap. You're getting close to Ben. You're pushing up on the white right, guy in this conversation. Ask, I was like, I wonder. Yeah, you're pushing like, up maybe, on that guy. Ben can identify <laughs> he has, with yeah, He yeah. has some stories to I'm, tell. I'm, I'm more KRS-One. I'm a little right, bit older. Right, right, right. Yeah. But it was like, yeah. you know, like, uh, I, I feel like people who are about our age and a little bit older are much more familiar with this than young people today because I think it's sort of been drummed out of the culture. But there was a period where, like, a lot of Asian kids, a lot of Jewish kids, I think, would sort of put on this affect when they're teenagers, right? Or maybe, and I, I sometimes I argue, look, I don't know if it's even an affect, right? It's just like you're developing and this is, this is the path that you chose. You chose this type of identification. And I definitely went through all of that, right? And so you, you swing back and forth, right? But um, what was interesting to me at the time, or you know, now that I think about it, is like, I don't know, like, I don't know, Ben, why did you like what, what was thank your you, yeah, Jay. Ben, thank ben, you because, I, because he's, much sitting, more he's, about he's literally let, let, let he's Jay literally the white guy in this conversation right. being silent like you said at the <laughs> right, beginning ben, of what's episode. the what was that like for you like what like what what was your experience with that the the what is like in terms of identity right or? no like in high school like where you did you listen yeah. to rap and like sort of yeah, that. I listened to rap. I mean, like Khalil and I joke because he was more like Phil Collins and I was more like Why are you talking about me? You got to talk about <laughs> no, no, yourself. I'm, I'm embracing it. Uh, you know, so the dominant culture was, you know, which I felt a, a part of. Like, I mean, I was sort of like, you know, saturated by by this world and like, you know, uh, connected to it in a lot of ways. Um, you know, Khalil had been asking me after reading this book about being Jewish in that in that world. And... I was sort of thinking about that in my head and like there wasn't like an alternative white dominant culture that I felt that I, you know, was vacillating between, right. you know, like, like between say white and black and then a third thing Jewish, you know, that there just, it didn't exist in any numbers in our, in our community. Um, so I could be I could this, think of a whole lot of corny white dudes who you No, but, follow, but that, that doesn't behind. mean, exactly. That doesn't mean that it's did dominant. You, did you have like a, like, did you feel like not totally white? at the time either because like that was it you know in North Carolina that my friends are mostly Jewish there weren't that many of them you know and I think about it it's like this is like the 80s and 90s it's like they weren't exactly white back then either you know like uh that's a great question you know what, what's funny about that I would say that I didn't think that at all in high school and then when I went to college and I was like amidst this all white culture I was like man I'm not really like all these white people right mm. And, and I didn't think in those terms beforehand. You know, I thought I was just this thing that existed in this space. Right. Um, and, and then being in an in a all-white space, essentially, a college, and people who didn't grow up in communities and neighborhoods like I did, I was like, man, I'm not like these white people. Right. And, and that had less to do with being Jewish than, than with sort of just coming from, from a certain, certain neighborhood. Right. Right, well, that. well, what I can tell you, Jay, uh, in, in, in clearer terms, is that this dude was 
was black cool in high school. <laughs> uh, he he carried himself in a way uh, that you know had swagger. He wore a gold chain. I, I to this day I've never owned a gold chain. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know, get he, you one for your. He, he, uh, for he your had his birthday. he had his Jabot jeans. I was still wearing. Well, who didn't wear Jabot jeans? jeans? Come on. Yeah. Well, I had I had <laughs> Come like on, one. Come on, you pair, didn't have Jabot jeans. <laughs> <laughs> and so, if I showed you pictures of him back then, uh, you would totally get it. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Many so of my that's, friends that's were, the, were exact. You know, were, <laughs> were that. Were like that. It's an interesting thing because I feel like there's a lot of sort of shame, right? It's not like people like are gonna cancel you get mad at you if you did that yeah. but certainly unless you actually put on blackface right then you're done. right but it's very <laughs> it's thought of as very gauche now and i don't know like yeah. do you uh, do you get that do you think it's gauche now or do you and like how do you reflect back on it and think about like hey you know like no i was right you know <laughs> <laughs> no no i don't i don't feel it because i don't feel like i was pretending to be something i wasn't either right i think i was aware of the the cultures around me and also, you know, engaged in it. Um, and so, yeah, the menu of options were there and I like picked from those menu items, you know, like of the six items, I picked five of them. And one of them, as Khalil said, it might've been like, you know, white kid on the math team and I didn't pick that one. <laughs> <laughs> when we come back after the break, we're going to talk to Jay about choices he made to focus his reporting on Black Lives Matter protests and the choices Asians in America can make about their future. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You write a lot about your reporting on the Black Lives Matter protests, yeah. which is something that I also did a lot of reporting on here in Chicago um, after the, the killing of Laquan McDonald and sort of like I got deep into this here. And, you know, what drew you to that reporting and sort of like, what did you learn about yourself uh, by covering this racial justice moment? Well, you know, since I was in high school or college, I thought that I still feel this way. You know, like I'm very drawn to protest movements, especially, you know, street protests. It's like the thing that I feel most passionately about. Right. And so yeah. during Ferguson and for the four years after, like that was basically my job. Yeah, you were you were the quote civil rights reporter for, for right, Vice. right. I did for some Vice stuff News, for the yeah, Times, yeah. and then my job for Vice was you know just go and you know see what's happening. And uh, as a result, I went to tons of these protests, right? Like uh, Baton Rouge, Minneapolis, Baltimore, St. Louis, yeah, Alton Sterling, Alton Sterling right, Freddie right, Gray, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and you write a lot about Philando Castillo, Philando Castillo, yeah. right? You know, it, it felt like. Uh, at first, I was just like, well, at a lot of them, I'd be like, well, I'm the only Asian person here, <laughs> you know? And yeah, yeah. Like, what is, what's you're going like, on you're like, here? You count the faces, right? Right, you know, right. One, I would like, just like, count. Well, one, one more thing before you say that. So I learned for the first time that uh, Asian people, at least at, at least you, give the nod. I was like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> there's an Asian nod? Yeah. Right? Isn't it what you say? Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I've protested in like 2017 or 2016. Yeah, definitely. But um, yeah. now last yeah. summer, there was much more uh, right. Asian people out for uh, George Floyd. But, you know, prior to that, I would see very few, you know, and um, people can argue with me or whatever. But I was at all of these, you know, and I was looking mm-hmm. and I didn't see many. <laughs> and it really did sort of form a lot of my thinking over the last five years, right? It was just like, well, what is all this, what is like sort of the public face of what people say Asian American identity is within like the press, right? They say, oh, well, it's like a radical political identity. It's like, uh, you know, like uh, it, we're allies, we're, we're, we're fellow people of color, right? And I'd be like, well, where are you? You know, like, um, mm-hmm. like why are you not showing up? Where are all of you? And, um, you know, it made me realize that like, the people who say those things are saying them in earnest. And I bet a lot of them did go to a lot of those protests, you know, but it's a very small population. And the vast majority of Asian America are people who are either recent immigrants or people who are apolitical. Right. And, um, and yeah, I don't know. I think it's difficult to make the argument that the people who do sort of think of Asian American identity as like this progressive people of color thing are in any way, the majority, they're just, you know, they just happen to be the people who, get to talk and define that thing. And that realization, I think, has been like the most formative for my political beliefs, at least, right? Which is just like, maybe we don't have to think about this stuff. Maybe it's more important to show up and, you know, like within the space of the protest, like all these things will be resolved. You can make connections, you can talk to people, you can organize with people. And that um, if you show up, 99% of the people there are not going to worry about, you know, your relative privilege or, or, you know, where you fit on a racial hierarchy scale at all, right? Like they're happy you showed up. And I think that that's the message I tried to put in the book because I think a lot of people, a lot of Asian Americans like myself who, you know, went to good schools and are upwardly mobile, I think they just need to hear it. 
You know, like start, don't worry yeah. about it, just show up. Yeah, Jay, this is really fascinating. I mean, you know, I teach at Harvard and I see, I see these kids. I mean, and they, many of them were born here. Some of them are oh, new yeah. to the country. Yeah. Uh, but to your point about feeling uncomfortable with this notion of a shared people of color identity is a very real thing. And I think your book does a good job of that. I think it would be helpful for me, though, to understand like how before 1965 for those immigrants as compared to the kids we're talking about that I teach or yourself or the people you want to show up at these protests, how, how should we understand this difference between before 1965 and after 1965? Yeah, so in 1960 census, there's like something like 800,000 people who are called Asians in this country, right? And mm -hmm. um, many of them have been here for generations, right? And the reason why there's not more is because it's, you know, there's exclusion laws. It's basically impossible to immigrate from Asia to the United States. And so you have this community, like a lot of them have been interned, right, by the time the 60s roll around. And uh, it's a small community. They've direct uh, links back to a lot of the campaigns of like racial terror that were inflicted upon Chinese people. All this stuff happened. Yep. And then what you have in 1965, you have you had, uh, the Hart Seller Immigration Act, and now you have more than 20 million Asian people in America. And the fastest growing yeah, uh, right. population. Fast growing population, people from all sorts of countries, right, uh, coming in, you know, the boundaries of what Asian America is expand every single day, right? And um, mm -hmm. you have populations that people don't even know about, right? <laughs> like um, like mm. the Hmong population, or you have like a Laotian mm -hmm. populations. And, you know, if you ask people on the street, what's Asian, what does Asian American mean? They're mostly going to just say Chinese, Japanese, or whatever, right? Maybe sometimes Korean. Or Korean. Yeah, or Korean. Or Korean, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. so the boundaries are expa uh, have expanded just drastically since then. And so one of the questions that I ask is just like, the history that those people prior to 1965 define themselves through internment, uh, exclusion, right? Uh, does it really have that much relevance to the people who came post 1965? Do the stories from the past have any relevance to the, to the masses of people who come afterwards? And how do they think about themselves in America, right? And I think they think about themselves in America very differently. I think they're much more like my parents who are just sort of like, put your head down, work, you know, don't think about it. You're in America now, you know? try and yeah. fit in and try and be successful, right? And these are the ways that you can be successful. We can't help you all that much, you know, because we don't know, we have no social capital here, right? And so what's mm -hmm. strange is that there's now this disconnect where the way that Asian American history is told or Asian American identity is formed, is very much based in things like the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? Like you saw when the women got killed in the spa in Atlanta, like everybody's doing threads about Asian American history, right? And it's it's about internment, yes. stuff like that. And my thought is always just like, I'm not that stuff is bad, you know. <laughs> like it was it was a, it was like a regime of white terror against Asian people, right? Yeah. What yes. does that really have like a full on connection with people who who have no no lineage to that at, at all, right? And so. I think that's sort of the point that I try and make in the book, which is just like, this is a pretty formless group of people at this point, right? And that um, they can really be anything. But what the thing that they're not really is like a fully formed people in any sort of way. Yeah, right. They're not cohesive. Yeah. Because I think to your point, um, the assimilationist imperatives of post-65 immigrants, the ones who are coming today, um, I agree with you, creates this huge knowledge vacuum. 
And I think part of what you're writing about in this book is is kind of what that means for justice. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'll say like, you know, the book is fascinating and the storytelling is amazing. Your mom on trips taking out the phone book and looking for Korean names. Right, right. And then and then actually calling those people <laughs> and then like getting together with right, them. Right, right. Yeah. They were just like sort of asking like, hey, are you all right here? You know, and just being like, I don't you know, that's uh yeah, it was definitely a cringe moment for me and my sister. You know, like, <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah. now that I'm older I understand it much better. You know, she must have felt very unsettled uh when my dad dragged us all out to like the you know the barons of the west every summer being like right gonna... this was like wyoming right, right? wyoming montana north dakota yeah. south dakota <laughs> it's like it's yeah, their yeah. only vacations like we didn't go to i don't know normal vacations man i love your parents uh <laughs> but but can we talk about you as a parent you also open and close the book writing about your daughter mm-hmm. and your daughter is biracial your 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 wife is is white, and I will, I'll also make a plug half Jewish, right. and also my children are biracial, and it is such an interesting sort of you know opening up to identity because you don't share a certain kind of identity with the person who is closest to you in the world, right. and and so there's a lot of reflection that that causes, and maybe early on because later you're just like. I'm just trying to deal with being a parent. But early on, like where you are, like you're really, you're deep in it thinking these thoughts. Like, will my child have an experience that is different than mine? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the emotional core of the book, right? It's sort of a rumination on why did, why did this happen to me, you know, and other Asian people? And then what's the future going to look like, right? Now that people are on this path of assimilation or if they are on this path of assimilation, and um, and who are the people who are not on the path of assimilation? What are their lives going to look like? And so for my daughter, I think about it and like, you know, she's we live here in the East Bay and, you know, there's a ton of half Asian kids running around. Right. And mm-hmm. um, she goes to a school where uh, there are way more half Asian kids than there were Asian kids, period, in any school I ever went to. And there are a lot of Asian kids, too. Right. And I remember the teacher at some point you know, this is, I think, during Pride Week or something like that, like Kate said to me, you know, she's like, I just want to raise like a bunch of allies, right? Like, I want these kids to be allies. And it's very, you know, like in my head, it kind of fucked me up because I was like, ally. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, I am not white, you know? Like, like if somebody yeah. had told me, like, you know, like, you need to be an ally. I'd be like, listen, you know, like I'm, I'm not white, you know, like, let me tell you, like, um, you need to, you need to ally with me. Right. My childhood was like, not great. You know, I <laughs> like, because I am not white, you know, but then I think about it just like, maybe she's right. You know, like maybe, you know, you, I'm sure Ben, you had these thoughts too, where it's just like, like is, is, is the stuff that I write, you know, is the stuff that I think about, I, I talk about in myself, is it going to be relatable to her? Right. Like, is she going to think about things yeah. in the same way? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you, you have such a contrarian persona online. Right. <laughs> and and and, you know, I mean, maybe that is inherently part of you, but it's also feels, you know, it's so forward on when and everything you post. And that, as you said, is like this emotional core and rawness and openness. You know, it, it has it has none of that. Oh, thank you. Well, I was I was thinking, though, that um I mean, your dilemma, uh, which you so you're so expressive about, you know, because you're like, you know, I don't want my daughter to be entitled, 
you know, I don't want to raise a spoiled kid. I mean, these are your right. words, right? And it seems to me, like Ben and I have talked about this on this show a lot, uh, but we as parents do make a choice. We make a choice about what we teach our kids about the world we live in. And, you know, I'm wondering, just as a final reflection, like, are you teaching your daughter the things that you're writing about? Because that seems to me to be a very different reality for her than what happened to you uh, when your parents didn't talk to you about these things. Well, she's, she's, uh, she's about to turn five. And so it's right about the time when these conversations start, mm -hmm. you know. And um, yeah, I think so, you know. And I think that, that I would like her to be aware of it in a way. Now, if she turns into like your sort of stereotypical, like, you know, bleeding heart liberal Berkeley kid, I'd be overjoyed. You know? <laughs> like, I'd be so happy, you know. But um, yeah, you know, here in, in Berkeley, we have a huge homeless population, right? And, you know, like uh, does not understand why people live in tents, right? And those conversations are starting. I had a friend come over at some point, and I, I probably shouldn't tell this story, but I, I, it's almost, it's kind of a little funny, you know, but she, I had a friend come we over like during, a little funny. in the middle of the pandemic, and no one had been in our house in a long time. And first, one of the first people to come to our house was my, one of my friends who's black. And <laughs> she, she goes, like, he walks in, and she says, he's black. And I was like, whoa you know like <laughs> and like it wasn't because she had not been around black people before you know but i think that she had been learning at school that there was this you know like because they learned about civil rights movement and everything like that and i think exactly. that it had been this moment where she like was starting to differentiate people and you know when we lived in new york we lived yeah. in crown heights you know she goes to uh preschool, everything like that, where like, you know, like 30, 40% of the kids in her class are black. And so it's not like she had not been around black people before, but it was this moment where, you know, something had clicked in her head. And so, yeah, we had a talk then too, you know, but it's. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> Jay, Jay, that is, that's such a beautiful story because, you know, for me as a parent, my kids are older. Um, my wife and I committed very early on to teaching them, but even we made mistakes. And by that, I mean, we didn't talk about Asians. Right. Like we talked about black, white. And the consequences of that was that we were living, my youngest daughter was born in Indiana. We were living in a community with a large population of Asian students, many of whom were immigrant students. And one day, babysitter has our like four-year-old kid on the bus, the campus bus, which was not a common experience for her, but she's on the campus bus. And she turns to her babysitter and says, why are there so many Asian people on this bus? Right, right, right. <laughs> so, you know, like that's an invitation, right, right, to parenting and to having a conversation. We are just so grateful for uh, you spending time with us today. And uh, we're going to count you among our best friends, Jay. So thanks for, thanks for yeah, spending Jay, time with us. This is amazing, Jay. Oh, Thank good. you so much. No, this is great. I think I think talking to him, I, I appreciated so much his openness with us and how experiences from his childhood are still he's still processing them. And, you know, I feel the same way. I feel the same way about my past. Like it's still I'm still wrestling yeah, you, with different ideas and thinking still about wrestling it. with no yeah, doubt. We need to talk about that some more. <laughs> but 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 I also think like if the book was only his personal individual experiences, it wouldn't mm -hmm. work. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, like he's just one person, but he, he tells this story about himself 
And it is a kind of coming of age story and a coming of age story uh, racially, but also an intellectual coming of age story. Because he he tells a story of, of thinking, you know, he he cakes all this this personal stuff in history and research and other flashpoint moments that are really important for an Asian community in the United States. I, I think I think that works, but I think the word I would use would not be intellectual. I think it would be political. Okay. One of the things that stuck out to me is when he talked about both in the book and a little bit in our conversation, that you know, who is really speaking for the people working in low wage retail, nail salons, laundering, restaurants today. Who's really speaking for them? And yeah. what he's basically saying is in my community, not a whole lot of us. Yeah. And he's saying their politics don't align necessarily, but like we have to find this common ground. And that to me, that was a really powerful part of the book. Um, that is an especially powerful yeah. part of the book because that's so much about what you and I are really committed to. We're committed to uh, the work that we do individually and the show collectively because these issues that we face should be all of ours to tackle. Yeah, yeah. Jay opens the book by saying he's not going to provide all the answers, but he mm-hmm. really is going to engage with a lot of these questions. And and he totally succeeds in that. Like, I am deeply immersed in this topic now from reading the book and thinking about it a lot and wrestling with these questions. And I, I definitely recommend people to to dive into this book as well. Yeah. And the truth is that probably for the first time in many ways, I am much more sensitive to and aware of many more communities that I, I need to care as much about as I care about my own. And yeah, I think yeah. that's really, that, that's a value to the book. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a powerful point. All right, man. Love you. Love you too. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by Cher Vincent and edited by Karen Shakurji. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez. Our associate editor is Keishel Williams. Our associate producer is Lucy Sullivan. And our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Lee Tal Molad and Mia LaBelle. Special thanks to Jay Caspian Kang. He's our newest best friend. (laughs) And you should check out his book, The Loneliest Americans, and also subscribe to his New York Times newsletter. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan Avery R. Young from his amazing album, Tubman. You will definitely want to check out more of his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. If you love Some of My Best Friends Are and any of the other shows from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And I, I just want to say, Khalil, 
you you just prove that argument about somebody who's connected to Harvard will bring it up in the first 15 minutes of the conversation. <laughs> you were Whatever. like, because I, I work didn't now say, in Cambridge. I didn't actually say <laughs> No, that's, to be that's fair, even I brought, it, I, I brought I, it up first. Right? <laughs> I, 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 see, it's what little you know about Cambridge has more than just Harvard. How about that? Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com.